Heavenly Father, so good to be here. To be in this place with um, those who are here and Lord in spirit with those who are at home. We're worshiping together our creator, our loving God. There's nothing better than that. Father, I would ask that as we turn our attention to your word, uh, we really need you. Uh, I need you desperately. I ask that you would fill me full of the Holy Spirit's presence, uh, full to overflowing so that what comes from my mouth is Holy Spirit-inspired words. Father, if anything comes from my heart, the fleshy part of it, Lord, may it fall away quickly. But Lord, what you have prepared for us to dine on this morning, Lord, may it, may it be a blessing to us, Father. May it glorify and honor you, but may it edify all of us. So as Kevin prayed, I say again, give us ears to hear, to hear what you have to say for to us, and then to have the courage, Father, to um, apply what it is that we learn. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a legend about a rabbi who welcomed a weary traveler into his home for a night of rest. After learning that his guest was almost 100 years old, the rabbi asked about his religious beliefs. The man said, I'm an atheist. Angry and upset, the rabbi ordered the man out, saying, I cannot keep an atheist in my house. So without a word, the man got up and hobbled out into the darkness. Shortly after the man left his home, the rabbi heard a voice say to him, Teacher, why did you throw that old man out? Because he is an atheist, and I cannot endure him even for a night. The voice replied, I have endured him for almost 100 years. Shaken to the core, the rabbi rushed out, brought the old man back, and showed him mercy. Let's look together at the fifth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open there. We are going to uh, look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip to verse 7. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, skip down to verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now the first order of business with regard to this beatitude is to answer this question. What, according to Jesus, does it mean to be merciful? To that end, I'd like to start off by talking about what it does not mean, according to Jesus, to be merciful. In this beatitude, Jesus was not referring, first of all, to mere sentimental feelings. Feeling sorry for someone, that is, being sympathetic, is a good quality. But it does not capture the depth of what Jesus was talking about here, as well as what the rest of the Bible teaches about being merciful. For instance, James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, teach us that when we see someone in need and we only acknowledge the need, that is, feel sorry for them, but we do nothing to help them, we've really done them no good at all. So being merciful is not merely about having sentimental or sympathetic feelings. 
Jesus was not referring secondly to the rote execution of good or helpful deeds. Some people equate kindness with mercy. And although being kind to one another is certainly a scriptural mandate, once again, it does not express the full and true essence of what it means, according to Jesus, to be merciful. And Jesus was not talking, lastly, about the mere avoidance of justice, which we know involves getting what we deserve. We talk in legal circles about placing ourselves at the mercy of the court. In other words, we know we deserve to receive punishment, but we're hoping that there will be a relaxing of the penalty. There, there will be a lessening of the verdict. Now, that's certainly a part of it, but even that does not fully explain the depth of what it means, according to Jesus, to be merciful. So what does it mean? Well, the original word translated as merciful in this beatitude is the word eleemon, a very rich Greek word that at its root means to wash over. In the Greek culture, which Jesus lived, this word was used in the context of whitewashing a wall or wiping out an impurity or canceling a debt, meaning that being merciful goes well beyond mere sympathy. Being merciful is being involved. It is love in action. And it includes not only washing out the deed that was done against you, but, and here's the rub, it also involves finding a way to help the person who has wronged you. Because you see, mercy is a heavenly action, not an earthly reaction. And its clearest demonstration, of course, is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who did not remain in heaven and passively say, whoever believes in me, I'll forgive them but who rather by his action, by his coming to this earth and dying in our place for our sins, demonstrated mercy. John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in his son will have eternal life. Now before you panic, that's close, but it's missing something very important. What the verse actually says is, for God so loved the, word that, the world that he, what? He gave his only son. God became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. And as I mentioned before, he went to the cross and there died on that cross for our sins. John repeats the thought in this first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it was by his involvement, by his loving action, that Jesus himself was merciful. All right, so with that basic understanding of the Greek word eleemon, translated as merciful in mind, I'm going to give you four marks of mercy that I think will help us to further flesh it out. I'll give all of those marks to you up front, and then I'll talk about each one of them individually. So here they are on the front side. I think they're on the screen. Yes, they are. The merciful, as those who put love into action, are those who are, first of all, patient with the peculiar. 
Secondly, they are forgiving of the fallen. Thirdly, they are helpful to the hurting. And fourthly, they are amiable to the antagonist. Let's talk, first of all, about the merciful being patient with the peculiar. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in Saddleback, California, uh, once said this, and I quote, I believe into every life a few weirdos must fall, end quote. Now, I would guess that's not quite as profound a reality in central Minnesota as it likely is in Southern California. No offense to Southern California. Nevertheless, all of us do come into contact, even in central Minnesota, with those whom we view as peculiar or odd, don't we? The merciful are those who are tolerant of or patient with those whom they see as a little bit different or peculiar or odd. Now, one might ask, what if the uniqueness of others is not only odd, but also offensive? How are we to be patient with the obnoxious? Well, I think the best way for us to do that is to come to the understanding that a lot of people who are, let's say, out of step are actually in a lot of pain. We need to stop focusing so much on the weird appearance and behavior of these people in our lives and look more closely into their internal being and see their hurt. Because usually behind a peculiar action, there is a need for attention caused by loneliness, by hurt, by depression. Merciful people are accepting people just as we are commanded in God's word to be. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The merciful are, are not quick to criticize or to judge. Rather, they're patient and long-suffering with others, especially to those who march to the beat of a different drummer. All right, let's talk next about the merciful being forgiving of the fallen. Ask yourself this question, and do it internally, okay? Ask yourself this question. When someone makes a mistake, do I have the tendency to rub it in or do I rub it out? Paul said in no uncertain terms that we as Christians are to rub it out. To the church in Colossae, he wrote this, and this is Colossians 3.13 in the contemporary English version, put up with each other and forgive anyone who does you wrong just as Christ has forgiven you. And not only are we to forgive those who wrong us, we are to initiate that forgiveness. Yes, you heard me right. We are to initiate that forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches that if someone sins against us, our first course of action is to go to that person and tell him his fault. That's verse 15 of Matthew 18. And if he doesn't listen... We are to take others with us. That, verse 16, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that is counter-cultural, isn't it? Some may even say in response, you mean to tell me that I've got to go to the one who's hurt me? No way. They're the ones who have done wrong. They should come crawling on their hands and knees to me begging for my forgiveness. Why should I initiate anything? Well, 
Because Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him. That's why. Now, sometimes the question becomes, how many times do I have to do this, for goodness sake? How many times do I need to show mercy? How many times do I need to, to, to forgive that person who's hurt me over and over again? If you're asking that question, you're in good company. Because that's exactly the question that Peter asked after hearing Jesus teach on this topic of forgiveness. He asked Jesus in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you need to understand that Peter thought he was being very generous here as the consensus of the day was that three times was the limit. Kind of like strike three, you're out. But Jesus said to him, verse 22, I did not say to you seven times, but get ready, Peter, your mind is about to get blown here. But 70 times seven. And Jesus didn't mean here that we are to forgive our brothers 490 times, which is the product of 70 times seven. Rather, it was his way of telling Peter that we should forgive our brother an infinite number of times. The merciful person does not limit the number of times he or she forgives. And this doesn't just apply to those who have sinned against us per se, but to those who have made mistakes that we just don't get, that for whatever reason we just don't understand. Let me explain that. All of us have certain areas that we are more vulnerable to temptation than other areas. Maybe we can't understand how someone can have an ego problem, for instance, but maybe the egomaniac doesn't get why we struggle so much with gossip. Or maybe we can't conceive how anyone could get hooked on drugs, but maybe the drug addict can't fathom our inability to deal with greed. You know what I find really interesting about forgiveness is that when it's ours to receive, so easy, and it feels so right, doesn't it? But as soon as we're called to give it, becomes very, very difficult. And it seems unjust and sometimes so very wrong. The merciful, thirdly, help those who are hurting. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. Remember, mercy is practical assistance. It's love in action. When we have the power to help someone, and we only feel sorry for them, we're not being very Christ-like. The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and <clears throat> sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John Wesley's life model encapsulates this mark of mercy very well. This is what he said. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you can. And that model lines up perfectly with Paul's words to the church in Galatia. This is Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. A merciful person is not a Jehovah's bystander, 
as comedian Philip Wilson professed to be when asked about his religious preferences. It's rather a person who gets involved in the lives of those who are hurting. The merciful, lastly, are amiable to their antagonists. This is without a doubt the most difficult mark of mercy to accept and to embrace. And you know what? We might even be a bit tempted to just kind of let this one slide by. But we can't do that. That's because Jesus very clearly said in Luke 6, 33 through 35, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And he goes on to say, to the contrary, now buckle up for this, right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I realize this is a lot easier to, to say than it is to do because it's, a, it's the complete antithesis of what the world tells us, right? The world says, if people hurt you, hurt them back. It also says, don't get mad, get even. But our God says, being merciful is a choice to do good. It's a heavenly action, not a worldly reaction. You know, it's a tall order to be merciful, really is, to be patient with the peculiar, forgiving of the fallen, helpful to the hurting, and amiable to the antagonist. We will need a powerful motivator to help us accomplish that one. And fortunately, we have just that. We have a powerful motivator, and that is the mercy that God has shown us, which is the whole point of the parable of the unmerciful servant that's recorded in Matthew 18 immediately following Peter's questioning of Jesus regarding how many times he should forgive a brother who sins against him. Here it is, Matthew 18, verses 23 through 30. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and then payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that very same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, nice guy, saying, "What? pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will 
repay you. Does that sound familiar? He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, that's not quite the end of the story. If you read on, you'll learn that when the merciful king finds out how unmerciful the servant was, well, let's just say it didn't go real well for him. The point of the parable is this. When we consider how merciful God has been to us by forgiving our sin debt through the blood of Christ, allegorized by the king forgiving the first servant of 10,000 talents, which would be several million dollars in today's currency, our refusal to show mercy to others is as ridiculous as the first servant immediately following this incredible forgiveness of debt that was extended to him, demanding that that second servant repay the hundred denarii, about 20 bucks and some change in today's currency. All I can say is, wow. That would be like a business owner walking out of an IRS audit, having been forgiven, I mean totally released from an enormous debt of several years of back taxes that resulted from an oversight by his or her inept accountant and then returning to the office to fire an employee for the unauthorized use of the photocopy machine to make a couple of personal copies. God's merciful treatment of us demonstrated at the cross of Calvary should be more than enough to motivate us to be merciful to others. But there is yet another motivator for our mercy, and that is the blessing found in our beatitude that is promised to the merciful to be shown mercy. Now, to get at what Jesus means by that, I'd like to share a story from Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. Quote's a bit lengthy, but it's worth it, so I'll just drink it in as I read it, all right? Yancey writes this. Blessed are the merciful. I learned the truth of this beatitude from Henry Nguyen, a priest who used to teach at Harvard University. At the heart of his career, Nguyen moved from Harvard to a community called Daybreak near Toronto in order to take on the demanding chores required by his friendship with a man named Adam. Nguyen now ministers not to the intellectuals, but to a young man who is considered by many a useless person who should have been aborted. Nguyen describes his friend. Adam is a 25-year-old man who cannot speak, cannot dress or undress himself, cannot walk alone, cannot eat without much help. He does not cry or laugh. Only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted. His arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy and despite heavy medication, sees few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes as he grows suddenly rigid, he utters a howling groan. On a few occasions, I've seen one big tear roll down his cheek. It takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, carry him to his bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk him to the kitchen, give him his breakfast, put him in his wheelchair, and bring him to the place where he spends most of the day with therapeutic exercises. On a visit to Nguyen in Toronto, I watched him perform that routine with Adam, and I must admit, I had a fleeting as to whether this was the best use of his time. I have heard Henry Nguyen speak and have read many of his books. He has much to offer. 
Could not someone else take over the menial task of caring for Adam? When I cautiously broached the subject with Nguyen himself, he informed me that I had completely misinterpreted the situation. He says, I'm not giving up anything, he insisted. It is I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. Then Nguyen began to list for me all the benefits he has gained. The hours spent with Adam, he said, have given him an inner peace so fulfilling that it makes most of his other more high-minded tasks seem boring and superficial by contrast. Early on, as he sat beside that helpless child man, he realized how marked with rivalry and competition, how obsessive was his drive for success in academia and in Christian ministry. Adam taught him that what makes us human is not our mind, but our heart. Not our ability to think, but our ability to love. From Adam's simple nature, he had glimpsed the emptiness that desert monks achieved only after much searching and discipline. All during the rest of that interview, Henry knew and circled back to my question as if he could not believe I could ask such a thing. He kept thinking of other ways he had benefited from benefited from his relationship with Adam. Truly, he was enjoying a new kind of spiritual peace, acquired not within the stately quadrangles of Harvard, but by the bedside of incontinent Adam. I left daybreak convicted of my own spiritual poverty. I, who so carefully arranged my writer's life to make it efficient and single-focused. The merciful are indeed blessed, I learned, for they will be shown mercy. That's the end of the quote. As Nguyen learned, and Yancey through Nguyen, there are certain riches. There are certain dispensations of God's grace and mercy that are acquired only as a result of the grace and mercy that we extend to others. It was through his mercy for Adam, not through any of his highbrow experiences as a Harvard professor or as an esteemed author that Nguyen learned about the heart and about love, and then he found deep and lasting spiritual peace. And because we too want to experience those special dispensations of God's grace and his mercy as Nguyen did, that is the blessedness that comes from being merciful, at least I hope that's true of all of us, I think it might be helpful, helpful for us to do a little soul searching, to ask ourselves and then to meditate on some very important questions. And with this, I'll close, okay? Regarding the peculiar, first of all, who has God put into our lives that are different than we are? That is, whom we view as a little bit odd, or maybe a lot bit odd, or maybe even obnoxious. How do we react to those people? How do we treat them? Is it possible for us to look past their uniqueness so as to see their pain? What can we do to be more accepting of and merciful with those people? Regarding the fallen, who has God put into our lives that have wronged us or sinned against us? Have we gone to those people and told them their fault according to Matthew 18, 15? If not, are we open to doing so? Are we willing to forgive those people whether or not they ask for our forgiveness? Regarding the hurting, who has God put into our lives that are really struggling? 
Are we being Jehovah bystanders in those people's lives? Or are we involved? If we've been merely sympathetic, what can we do to help provide practical aid and relief to those people? And lastly, regarding the antagonists, who has God put into our lives that oppose us? Are we repaying evil for evil in response to their opposition? Or are we leaving vengeance to God, choosing instead to do good to those people? Who are the weary travelers, the atheists in our lives whom God is asking us to endure and maybe even to love for the sake of the gospel? That really is the last question. Who are those people? Blessed are the merciful. Extremely happy are those who are patient with the peculiar, forgiving of the fallen, helpful to the hurting, and amiable with their antagonists. For they shall receive mercy. That's how the ESV puts it. They shall receive mercy. They will receive the riches of God's mercy, those special dispensations of his grace. Come on up, worship team. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Father, we, we do want to be merciful people because we want to be shown mercy. We want to experience the joy and the blessing of those special dispensations of your grace. Those things that come as a result of the grace and mercy we show others. There's really no other way for them to come our way. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be patient with those who are different than us, that we view as maybe a little bit odd. Help us to, to be long-suffering with those people. Father, maybe we'd be quick to forgive those who sin against us, those who wrong us. And may we have the courage to initiate that forgiveness, to tell him his fault. Father, help us to be truly helpful to those who are hurting, not just sympathetic, not just to feel bad for them, but to, to, to lend a helping hand, to ask how we can help them, how we can come alongside of them to help them in their hurt. Father, help us, probably most of all, to be amiable to those who oppose us, to our antagonists, to those who the wrong us, that they're out to get us. Father, help us to, to feed our enemy when he's hungry, to give him water to drink when he thirsts. Father, as we meditate on these questions that I've, that I've posed, Lord, bring to light those people in our lives that may fit one or all of those categories and also show us, speak to our hearts, let us know what it is we need to do to be merciful according to Jesus. It's in his precious name I pray these things. Amen. Please rise. Please stand so we can worship together.